millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are continuing our mini-series on great maritime innovations. Following on from last week's episode on the great Wastony Smith stopless anchor. It was a fantastic episode in which I spoke to the great-granddaughter of the Victorian engineer William Wastony Smith who invented an anchor that fundamentally altered seafaring, making it simpler and safer for everyone. So do please check out that episode. Now, Today we're looking at the history of sea charts, a subject that is so important to all of the maritime world and the making of the maritime world. That world took shape in our minds through the development of the sea chart, which in turn led to colonisation, globalisation, a great mixing of the populations of the world that has in turn led to our diverse nations and the complex history of the world today. It is so often assumed that ships were the tools by which the sea became arteries of trade and transport and conquest, but that, of course, is to overlook the sea chart as the indispensable tool that made that happen. I'm particularly fond of the fantastic and distorted views of lands that we see in the early charts, and I'm also constantly dumbstruck by the outstanding levels of accuracy achieved in the 18th and 19th centuries by Europeans such as Cook, Vancouver and Flinders, who were operating in small boats on treacherous and, by definition, uncharted coastlines. I love that moment in time when sea charts changed from something that was aesthetic to something that was a precise record of navigation and offered precise instructions on how to repeat a certain voyage. Today we find out a huge amount about the sea chart, what it is, how important it is to the course of history. We find out about Portolan charts, uh, how they can convey more information than just navigational instructions and how sea charts are in fact all secret historical sources of immense value. 
To uncover all of this, I spoke with John Blake, who served nearly 12 years as a seagoing officer in the Royal Navy, and back in 1996 initiated and ran the licensing of the United Kingdom's Hydrographic Offices archives. He became a producer of the Admiralty Sea Charts as their licensing agent for six years under the brand name The Admiralty Collection. So as ever, here on the Mariner's Mirror podcast, we bring you the best of the best. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the brilliant John. John, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, we're, we're going to be talking about charts. Why don't we talk about the one that's behind you in the picture? Tell me about that very quickly. All right. Well, this, this is a facsimile from Captain Cook. During what's known as his green period, my wife and I um, were appointed to develop the Admiralty Collection at the Hydrographic Office down in Taunton, and we developed a lot of products that took uh, images from their archives of original maps and sea charts and such like. This is one that um, we were able to copy, and it actually shows. Newfoundland, which Captain Cook was then uh, a master, and it took him about three years to uh, do the whole circumnavigation of the island of Newfoundland. And he so impressed Lord Colville, who was commanding the um, British out there, having been involved in surveying the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Heights of Abraham in Quebec, which uh, was key to the British landing behind the expected French uh, defence and taking the town of Quebec, the city of Quebec. Resulting from this, uh, they were so impressed with his abilities as a, a navigator and as a chart maker that he got this appointment. Resulting from this, Captain Cook then was appointed by the Admiralty, although he was only the son of a humble baker in Whitby. He broke through the traditional glass ceiling of class and um, went on to command three voyages of the uh, Endeavour, Resolution and Discovery in um, covering some 6,000 miles of the of the world seas, covering more of this planet than any other man before or since that we know of. Uh, phenomenal achievement. So this is an early example of his work and shows how he realised the necessity for depths as well as recording uh, the head, heading bearings needed to make a safe entry into harbour avoid the worst of the dangers mm. um, that cause so many shipwrecks. Well, um, for our listeners, I'll make sure that I get a copy of that and that they can find that online and be able to see what you're talking about. Um, but it makes the point that sea charts allow us to, you know, it opens a window into all sorts of wonderful maritime history. But I think for those of uh, our listeners who may not be entirely certain exactly what we're talking about, why don't we explain what a sea chart is and what it isn't? Right. Um, one way to look at it is to compare it with a land map, which gives the orientation from the point of view of somebody 
going across, um, whereas a sea map is orientated towards the navigator understanding his progress across the, the ocean. So you can actually record your course to steer and then assess how well you've been able to maintain that course bearing in mind that you've got tidal streams, wind, and um, other problems that will have taken you from your normal, the course that you wish to attain. Of course, the early charts before Gerard Makata uh, discovered from Geographia the uh, ancient Ptolemy map that you could divide the Earth into latitude and longitude. And um, the problem was that the early charts only had the area shown with a course to steer, which is known as plane sailing, P-L-A-N-E, which does not allow for the, 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 the global circumference. So you were sailing what's called a room line, which um, was a straight line on the chart, but Makata discovered how, with latitude and longitude, adjusting latitude, that you could make a course to steer which followed the great circle. And the, an example of the distance I've written down here, if you sail the great circle from Boston, to Lisbon, it's 3,170 nautical miles, whereas if you follow the room line, not allowing for the curvature of the Earth, which is what Makata did in his groundbreaking projection, and we still use today, it was 3,237 nautical miles. Quite a difference if you were a packet ship or you were trying to deliver trade on time. So. The, the sea chart gives information for the navigator and for the captain of the ship on tides, on drift, on what you can expect to see when you approach land. And in fact, navigation was derived in two separate forms. Uh, there was the Mediterranean one, which concentrated more on what's called the Portland, and I'll explain more about the Portland in a moment. And in northern waters, you had uh, more of a coastal style of navigation. But if we go back earlier still, we realize that the Vikings were able to get to Greenland, uh, some think North America, uh, certainly Iceland, and they, they discovered how they could use a mineral and I'm trying to remember the name of it suddenly, <laughs> uh, which even in cloud and mist refracted the sun so that they could see when the sun, and they realized when the sun was overhead that um, at midday, they could see what their latitude was. So that even the Vikings had an early form of uh, navigation without the sea chart. Mm. And the... Charts that developed in the northern waters were basically looking at more sailing from coast to coast, from headland to headland and so on. Yeah. Whereas in the Mediterranean, they developed the Portland chart, which had a different 
concept. Uh, you could actually lay your course to steer on the chart and see what magnetic heading you had. And of course, you before the magnet was brought from China around 1250 or so, the winds in the Mediterranean became the important criteria, one of the important criteria for deciding on your wind direction. It's a fundamental difference, isn't it, that you've got places like the Mediterranean or um, other places in the world where you do have reliable winds, you have trade winds, and yet that will help you decide where you want to go. But it's very different for us up in, um, I mean, the, the West Country here. I suppose we have a prevailing southwesterly wind, but generally speaking, the winds go all over the place. It does, yes, yes. And the Mediterranean winds, they they relied on knowing the direction of whichever wind it was, whether it was the Mistral or the Bora or the Sirocco or the Levantine, and there are about eight other winds. And they were very dependable in their direction. Yeah. Of course, other methods of navigation came in. Um, and once the magnet had been discovered and its relevance to magnetic north enabled sailors to decide on their direction uh, the way they could sail with, with much more accuracy. So um, more broadly, let's just think about how important sea charts are to the course of history. Uh, it's a very big question, that. But um, I think it will help people really understand and appreciate just just how significant these these wonderful artefacts are. Yes, well, the, the very first Portland chart that we know of uh, dates about 1275. And... Um, is in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, actually. And, mm -hmm. and my wife, Francine, who is French-Canadian, actually, <laughs> has a different perspective on history from, from me. Um, and I were invited to the, uh, to the archives. Uh, very privileged. Not many people have been allowed to actually see this chart in person and handle it, obviously with gloves on. But it's uh, an extraordinary chart because it's, the Portland concept was to construct a form whereby you had two circles drawn off with 32 what are called room lines, R-H-U-M-B, um, lines of constant bearing as a grid. And then the coast would be plotted onto it. And was it Louis IX who um, was uh, one of the um, kings involved in sailing to Jerusalem during the Crusades, mm. according to history, he, he used this chart to find his way from the south of France to what's now called Israel, of course, and land his troops. But astonishingly, this chart, which was based on Ptolemy's uh, Geographia measurements, is uh, within four degrees of what we know the Mediterranean to be today. So it covers from the gates of Hercules, pillars of Hercules, sorry, i.e. Gibraltar into the Mediterranean, right across to the eastern Mediterranean. And as the sailing became more proficient, sailing the Mediterranean became more important because the Silk Route would deliver the goods to Constantinople. And then the important thing was to sail to France, Britain to Holland to Northern Europe with the spices and silks and such luxury expensive goods from the from the east. 
So that was extraordinary to be able to see this first chart. But um, we don't think that that is the original chart. We think it is the successor to others before it, which have been lost or destroyed or whatever. So the concept of Portland charts probably goes back earlier still than uh, 1275. Yeah, and um, no doubt um, it was also linked with the Crusades. It's quite interesting talking about Louis the Ninth there, because um, he goes on some of the later Crusades. But of course, Richard I goes on the Third Crusade, so around 1189, 1190s, and he's the first one to go by sea. So um, I'm, I'm guessing that he had some kind of similar chart. I'm sure he did, although he may well have uh, done more of a coastal type of navigation, hugging the coast and laying up at night for safety and then proceeding by day. What was the chart made of? What was this early Portolan chart made of? Yes, that's that's a good question. Um, normally goat skin, and they had to dry it out and stretch it, and then they'd use all sorts of natural inks. That's why it hasn't faded, things like uh, oak galls and so on. The uh, Portland chart in the Bibliothèque Nationale, Carta Pisani, which came from the Pisan family, and at the time, the two important seafaring ports were Genoa and Venice, particularly during the 15th and 16th century. But it was the advent of the printing press, which uh, was in 1436, that um, started to change the possibilities because each of these Portlands were beautifully hand-drawn. And mm. the um, compass roses and the cartouche became works of art in themselves on them. And you asked me one question, which is, which are the most impressive Portlands that we've seen, that I've seen in my research? And certainly one of them is in the Hispanic Society of America in New York. And we've got a fantastic collection of Portland charts. And this particular one is the, well, the Padron Royale uh, measures eight foot by Three foot. Eight foot? Unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> huge. And they have it on display as you come in. And that, that dates um, to about 1520 and shows the Portuguese and Spanish possessions. They were the two then, two dominant sea powers yeah. with the coats of arms and so on. And it reflects the interesting Treaty of Tordesillas where the Borgia Pope was asked to adjudicate between Spain and Portugal and avoid war because they, Columbus, having discovered the Americas in 1495, there was a rush to lay claim to the Americas. And um, what they didn't realize when they went to get the Pope to say, okay, Spain, you got all the land to the west, and Portugal, you've got all the land to the east, so that's why it includes uh, Indonesia and so on. What they didn't realize is that Brazil at the time was undiscovered and bulged out into the Atlantic, and the line dividing the two goes neatly down where Brazil is today, and that's why Brazil is Portuguese, and they speak Portuguese, and the rest of South America is Spanish. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And that goes on to be so important for the people also sailing east because Brazil was a very popular place to stop before you'd go around the Cape, um, uh, Cape of Good Hope, go around South Africa. Indeed, yes. Um, following the trade winds yeah. and then sailing across. And, of course, once Australia had been discovered and initially its discovery by the Dutch was kept secret, and, uh, indeed, this chart in Hispanic society was, was presented to the King of Spain. But a later Portland chart by Juan Vespucci, um, who was a navigator himself, and showed all the Spanish possessions in South America and how to get to them, defected to the Medicis right. and was accused of treason. And if you did that, you could be executed. So if you allowed a chart to get into any so-called enemy or a competitor's hands, then um, that was it. You, you were going to be executed. That shows the measure of regard, the secrecy of using a chart. It's, all, it, it's fascinating. Let me just come in there because this period, um, it, it's to do with the rise and fall of nations. This is how important charts are, and especially if you think of the Venetians. So the Venetians are controlling all of the trade that's coming in from the Silk Road um, overland, and then they control the movement of all of those wealthy goods across the Mediterranean, you know, up to Northern Europe, making an absolute killing. Yes. And then, the, the, you know, the, the, the Portuguese and the Spanish suddenly start sailing around the bottom of Africa, and that that's changes everything, because the Venetians aren't, aren't in control of that trade anymore. Very much. You're quite right, Sam. Um, and Magellan and Diaz and other Portuguese and Spanish discoverers finding the path out to the Philippines and the Spice Islands, round the Cape of Cape Horn, and also going, as you described, past the Cape of Good Hope to India, created the, the race for these. And the British and the French didn't want to be left out. Mm. And they thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go for North America, we'll uh, annex the North America, which Britain did, and then there was the war between France and Britain, of course, or England. But they were keen to find an alternative way 
through the northwest and northeast passages mm -hmm. and that's a whole story in itself <laughs> yeah yeah but they realized that um australia existed new holland and they before the um reliable means of determining longitude they would sail the latitude until they in inverted commas hit australia and then yeah. they could turn north and uh, find the philippines and uh, sumatra and so on and then later on japan indeed so yes it was a sort of race really to either make trading relations or colonize and um britain joined joined the game later on and as we know uh colonized india which is quite extraordinary as well as north america mm. was then lost with the war of independence yeah this feels like it's very much a story of of european powers uh coming in and then and then charting everything themselves what about um locally made charts let's like let's think about somewhere like china have they made their own charts well yes um that's that's not something i know that much about but um both china and japan did make their own charts japan was very keen to isolate itself and forbade any trade with the west except in nagasaki where they were treated with sort of foreign contempt the chinese charts are, are much more literal they're they're more showing how you get in terms of distance from a to b is rather the way the romans mapped their routes marching across europe it was shown as a straight line map at one stage i think is in the 15th century they they undoubtedly sailed with a huge fleet the chinese to places like philippines uh they're meant to have got to east africa and perhaps to australia but that's conjectural whether they got to as far as south america is extremely conjectural but they did have their own form of charts but they weren't in the same format as uh european charts yeah and another one is you know that was not in the same format of the stick charts of the um you know the pacific islanders so it's not the only writing things down on paper is certainly not the only way to go about this yes um captain cook when he landed in tahiti the polynesians had discovered over a period of 2000 years and progressing south that populated various numerous islands in the south pacific but they they used understanding the winds the tides the color of the sea the type of birds seabirds whether they were land birds or seabirds the swell pattern as well and indeed uh the, the, there is a, a famous stick chart which uh yeah. shows um some 600 miles which was produced by captain cook's uh, tahitian friend showing the relative position of, of the islands as they understood it and it was more the bearings rather than the distance that was shown on on there the marshall islands particularly were shown in this this one which in fact i put in my book yeah yeah and i i think one of the fascinating things about about this is when you update and change charts so 
I, I'm interested in it because essentially it's um it's a historical problem. You are given information and you have to, like a historian, work out whether it's accurate or not, and whether whether you should put it on your chart, um, which is where the hydrographic office comes in now. They get information from all over the world quite regularly, and someone has to determine whether this new information is actually reliable or not. So could you just talk a little about how charts have been updated over time? Yes. Um well, the, the French were the first to establish a hydrographic office as early as 1720. Um, the British didn't do so till 1795, uh, a lot later. Uh, before that time, captains of ships would uh, produce their own charts and go along to uh, printers in London uh, who would then sell them commercially. And then the whole thing was brought in under... Uh, one authoritative organization in Britain, the United Kingdom Hydrographic Office. And it, it is important that charts are kept up to date. So captains of ships were encouraged to report in any inaccuracies or any new sightings or a shoal or rocks and so on. And the reason, the principal reason why the Hydrographic Office came into being eventually was the lack of accurate chart information. And this is encapsulated by Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel, who took uh, a fleet after trying to help Prince Eugene in his fight in 1701 in Toulon. He was returning to Britain, foul weather, 21 ships, and he thought he was well clear of the Scilly Isles and interestingly, uh, a very seasoned old sailor who, who came up and said, excuse me, sir, but I think uh, you're making a big mistake here. We're going to hit yeah. the, the rocks of, of the Scilly Isles if, if you keep on this course. And he was hung for insubordination. Uh, mm. And indeed, Clousey Shovel drove his ships onto the rocks. Three out of 21 were lost, some 1,600 sailors. And this gave rise to the call for an accurate way to determine longitude. And this was a big problem until they offered £20,000 prize, which I don't know how many millions that would be today, to design a clock that could be taken to, to sea so that you could maintain your time at Greenwich and then have your local time, and then understand your longitude by subtracting the two times, 60 degrees, one hour. And, of course, it was John Harrison whose extraordinary work as a clockmaker designed eventually H4, which could be taken to sea as a chronometer and would keep the time. And, indeed, Captain Cook took K4, uh, which was a copy of H4, by the clockmakers Kendall to on his uh, second voyage out to the Pacific uh, when he was uh, trying to discover more of uh, Australia and uh, this great southern continent they thought must exist to counterbalance the weight of the northern hemisphere with all the European uh, Russian lands and so on. Yeah, well, it's extraordinary the way it, it becomes kind of 
increasingly scientific and more mind-bending. I live in um, Exeter in oh, Devon, yeah. Yeah. and um, uh, it's a fascinating place. And I've always been con- surprised, I think, by the Vikings did not come here more often because to find Exeter, all you have to do is sail down the English Channel. You go past the White Cliffs of Dover. You go past the Black Cliffs of Lyme. Yes. You then get to the Red Cliffs <laughs> of, you know, Budley Salton. Then you turn right. Yeah. It's as easy as it could possibly be. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Um, John, thank you very much indeed for sharing this wonderful story. I've really appreciated it today, and um, I hope we've inspired people to go and study some sea charts. All right. Well, nice to meet you virtually as well, of course. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please make sure that you leave us a review on whatever app you are listening on, especially if you're listening on iTunes. Uh, We'll read out any review that you leave. It's hugely important to help us climb the rankings and get as many people as possible listening to the podcast. We have a fantastic YouTube channel with some really remarkable videos on it. Most recently, the animation of a cutaway of a 17th century first-rate man of war explaining everything that is going on inside. This podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, so please make sure you do everything in your power to check out what those brilliant institutions are up to. In particular, please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's a brilliant new project from the Lloyd's Register Foundation, filming the world's best ship models. Just Google it, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find them at snr.org.uk, and it's a brilliant way for anyone interested in maritime history to find out more about what they're interested in but also to meet some wonderful people who share the same interest it's worth every penny Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.